Hello, this is Dr. Mike Barnett with the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Thank you so very much for tuning in to our podcast, and I pray that today's message will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. We are engaging our people at First Baptist Church in an emphasis called Who's Your Mission? It is a challenge to personal soul winning and personal evangelism for the year 2023. We've asked our people to ask God for at least one soul to be burdened for that they might go after that soul and win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of these current messages. And I pray that they will encourage you to be a soul winner and go after one soul that needs to be saved now and to know Jesus now. I pray these messages will help you. And again, thank you for tuning in. and orchestra. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. School started this week, and I asked my two little buddies how school got off, and they said, good, good. And I said, do you have good teachers? Yes. And I'm not going to tell you which one. I said, are you being good? And they said, I'm always good. So I'm not going to tell you which one said that, because mama might get upset, but... Anyway, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we resume our verse-by-verse exposition preaching through 2 Samuel. We've come a long way with David. Now in these chapters, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, we're going to see what I would call the Camelot years of Israel. These are truly, in all of history, in chapter 7 through 10, the greatest period of time, history, for the nation of Israel. And we'll see why as we begin to go through it. But let's begin. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, And it came to pass. Let me pause there for just a few moments. You read that phrase, often in Scripture, and it came to pass. Picture David climbing a mountain. He was at the foot of the mountain when he was a young boy keeping his father's sheep, learning how to be a shepherd, being prepared by God as wolves and bears and lions and marauders would come his way. And he would defend his father's sheep. And then one day he begins an incline when Samuel the prophet shows up at his house and anoints him to be king over all Israel. And he trudged up the mountain through dangers, toils, and snares a little bit more. And he's summoned by King Saul to play his harp and give this troubled king with a bad, sinful attitude, ease of soul. He goes up the mountain a little further, and he has that wonderful experience that we all love with Goliath. Remember? Rock and roll. David rocked and Goliath rolled. He got up the mountain a little bit more, and a little bit more when he became captain of Saul's army. And then it seemed like he was making no progress whatsoever for Saul got after him, trying to kill him for a number of years. And then finally Saul dies in battle. And David is anointed king over Judah only. And there is a civil war. And it's seven years of bloodshed and division. And then... He climbs up a little more onto that mountaintop, and the war is over. And he is crowned king of all Israel. And he's said and done. And he brings home the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 6. 
And now chapter 7 says, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. David is at the pinnacle. He's at the top of his career right now. David is never going to be any better as a king and as a man than he was right here in these chapters 7 through 10. He's made it. He is king. But when we finish with chapter 10, we come to another, and it came to pass, in chapter 11. Now, if I am preaching to a group of accountants, and I say chapter 11, what are they going to think about? Bankruptcy. Well, I don't know if the Holy Spirit arranged our chapters and numbers in this way, but I will tell you, David got bankrupt in chapter 11. He sinned a great sin. And so we have two, and it came to passes, and in between are Camelot and wonderful years, the greatest in Israel's history. And so today, we're going to begin to preach sermons that will warm your heart but in a few weeks, we're going to get to chapter 11, and it's going to warn our hearts. Let me tell you something, folks. Let's not rest up high on that mountain, although that's a song you all love. David got too at ease on top of that mountain, and he fell morally. And I want to tell you, it was all downhill from then. So let's look at David on the mountain now. I call this God's purposes and God's promise. David, it's incredible what happens in this chapter. This is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. It takes us back to David, and it launches us forward to the day of Jesus Christ when he establishes his kingdom on earth. God's purposes... And God's promises. Let's read uh, through verse 17. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, that that representation of God where we go to meet with him, where he comes down in glory and meets with us. The ark of God dwells within curtains, dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with thee. I'm excited, David. And then verse 4. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but I have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle, in all places in which I have walked with the children of Israel, spoke I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people, Israel, saying, Why don't you build me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with you wherever you went and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight and have made you a great name like unto the name of the great men who are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, 
and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as formerly. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will build you a house, David. And David, when your days are fulfilled and you sleep with your fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thine own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. We're going to stop right there. And next week, we're going to see the response of David. But this week, I want to talk to you today about the promises or the purposes and the promise of God. God has a purpose and he keeps his promises. So first of all, this text is what we call the Davidic covenant. It is God's covenant that he made with David. You might know that he made a covenant with Abraham. Well, here he is making a covenant with David. We call it the Davidic covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. God says, I am going to do this. And so, from that context, we have some lessons that we learn about the purpose of God. And then we have some lessons we learn about the promises of God. As we've said, David reached the top. And God had given him rest from all his enemies for the time being. And his house was built. God has brought David through so very much. He's going to take him through an awful lot. When we get to chapter 8, we're going to see blood and guts. It's something else. But for now, David is going to learn a lesson about the purposes of God. Let's talk about God's purpose. David had been blessed. And he says, I want to do something for the Lord. I want to honor the Lord. I'm resting from all my enemies. There's no wars right now. I'm at ease. I want to do something for the Lord. I don't want to just sit back on my blessed assurance. I want to get busy and do something for the Lord. And so what does he do? He does what a lot of people do. He calls the preacher. And this preacher's name was Nathan. Nathan was a prophet of God, one of David's closest confidants, a preacher to the king. And he was a straight shooter. I like Nathan. When I get to glory, I want to meet Nathan. And he tells Nathan, I want to do something for the Lord. I live in a beautiful home. It's a gorgeous home. But the ark of God, it's in a tent. It's in an old tabernacle. And so I, I want to do something for the Lord. Well, it's communicated somehow, and Nathan is excited to get a temple. And so Nathan says, just do what's in your heart, David. Just do what, God, what you think God wants you to do, what's in your heart. Just go at it, David. That, that's got to be the purpose of God. But that night, God wakes up Nathan. In the middle of the night... And says, go and tell David, no. 
I don't think Nathan argued with the Lord. I don't think he said, well, I've already told him, yes, Lord, and, you know, we got to, we got to have something else besides just a tent. Boy, it sure would be nice. Nathan got up, got dressed, and went right to the king, probably woke the king up and said, God says no. Now, there's no rebuke right here. David is not rebuked. Nathan is not rebuked. They didn't ask God. They just thought it was a good thing to do. But God says no. So there's no rebuke. As a matter of fact, in, when Solomon goes to build the temple that his father David wanted to build in 1 Kings 8, this is what Solomon says. And it was right, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well. You did well that it was in your heart. So there's no rebuke. There's just correction. You know, sometimes correction doesn't mean we're in trouble. Sometimes we just need to be corrected in our direction. And God says, David, I have a different purpose. And so in all of this experience that I read, I have some lessons about God's purpose and what he would have you to do. Now, this is going to be very strange for you, what I'm about to tell you, these, these lessons. And we're going to go through them quickly because I really want to get to God's promise, but uh, you're going to find it remarkable that a pastor in a day and age when servants are lacking, that he would tell you do these things. But these are some valuable lessons we learn about God's purpose. First purpose is this. Obedience is God's purpose for everyone. There is a general will of God for all of us. There is a general will of God for all. All of us need to be involved in who's your mission. All of us need to be givers. All of us need to love the Lord with all our hearts. All of us need to love our neighbors as ourselves. All of us need to be in worship. All of us need to be prayer, prayer people, people of prayer. All of us. There's a general will for all of us. There's some things that you don't have to pray about. You know God says to do them. But I'm not talking about those things today. So there is a general will for all of us to obey. But with that being said, God has a particular task for every one of us, for you and me. There's a general will for all of us. And within that general will, God has a particular task for you. He has something for you to do. And he doesn't want you to do other things. He wants you to do his particular will and his particular work for you. The second lesson we learn is this. There's more to doing the will of God and being in the will of God than good intentions. David had good intentions. And he was right to seek Nathan's wisdom. But Nathan should have said, the preacher should have said, David, this is huge. You've just come off uh, a great victory. God has just blessed you. You brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem. You conquered Jerusalem. This is a huge undertaking to build God a house, David, um, and I'm happy you're willing to see it, and you have a heart for the Lord. You are a man after God's own heart. This could be God's will for you. This may be what God wants you to do, but you called me here for a reason. Perhaps we need to back up and pray about this. Let's spend some time in prayer, and just like you ask God through your years of fleeing Saul for direction, let's ask God for direction in this situation. But the preacher does what a lot of other preachers do. A lot of preachers do. 
they see an opportunity for something nice and they say, yeah, let's get after it. Years ago at my last church, it was a Saturday. I never will forget it was a Saturday. I had a gentleman call me on the phone. And he says, I want to donate 40 acres to your church. Do you need to talk to some people about it? I said, no, let's take it. Let's do it. Fortunately, it turned out to be a good thing. But could you imagine if it was 40 acres of swampland? So there's more to doing the will of God and being in the will of God than having good intentions. If David had proceeded with this, he would have been in disobedience. The third lesson is, just because something is for God doesn't necessarily mean it's of God. Did you hear me? Just because you want to do something for God doesn't necessarily mean it's of God for you to do. Another lesson is we see the proper attitude towards serving God. This is the real test. This is the real test of who you are serving. This is the real test of where your motives are. David wanted to do something for the Lord. But what he wanted to do for the Lord was not of the Lord for him to do. He wanted to build God a temple. He had all the money. He had all the land. He had everything he needed to get it done. He was king of Israel. He's a conquering king. He was the man from all appearances who was supposed to get it done. After all, it was for God. But Nathan came in the middle of the night and said, David... You're not the man for this job. You're not the man for this job. Now, we read the text. A, here's the test question. A, multiple choice. A, did David say, how dare you tell me what I can't do for God? I know you're his prophet. I know you have his word. I know who you are. But how dare you tell me what I can and can't do for God? I want to do this, and I'm going to do it. Is that what he said? Nope, he didn't. David said, okay. David said, yes, Lord. I'm willing to submit to that, to the Word of God through Nathan. I'm willing to submit to the Lord's particular will. Now, this means David had grown in the Lord a lot. You remember the last time in chapter 6 he wanted to do something for God and he brought the, was going to bring the tabernacle to Jerusalem and he did it all the wrong way and God killed a man over it. Remember that? And, and God killed it. It took him three months to get it right. Three months to get it straight, Brother Charlie, to get it done right. This took less than 24 hours. He learned some things. So you got to grow in the Lord to be this kind of servant. And by the way, I want you to notice at least twice God says to Nathan, go tell my servant David. He didn't say go tell the king. He said go tell my servant David he's not going to build me a house. Go tell my servant David he's not the man for this job. And David's proper attitude was submission to the Lord. Have you ever wanted to do something for God and God said, nope, that's not for you to do? Well, you're in the same situation if you submit to him. Another lesson we learn about the purpose of God is this. God prepares you for something specific. He might be preparing you for something specific right now. You might not have reached the top of your mountain. He's preparing you. Or you might look back on your life and see where God has prepared you for what you are doing. Or you might be looking back saying, I didn't, I didn't want this. Well, maybe you're doing something for God that's not of God. But God prepares you for something specific. Notice what he says in these verses. God says in verse 8, Now this is what you tell my servant David. I took you from when you were just a lowly shepherd boy. 
I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to make you a ruler over my people. In other words, David, I took you from following sheep to leading a nation. I did that for you. And I was with you wherever you went as you fled from Saul. I have cut off all your enemies. I have given you victory. And I have made you a great name. I have brought you this far. And you are a great man in the earth. And so David... I prepared you for a specific purpose. David was to be a ruler, not a temple builder. You say, well, both of them are important. That's right. That's right, both of them are important. You know, everything that people need to do for God is important. But not everything is for everybody to do. David, I prepared you to be a ruler. If you start being a temple builder you're going to fall apart because that's not what I prepared you to do. That's not what I gifted you to do. Somebody else is going to be the temple builder, but you're going to be the ruler. You, you have a particular ministry that I prepared you for. And you know that's true for everyone who knows Jesus and every member of any church if you know Jesus. Is God has something particular for you to do? Watch out for the guy who tries to do everything. Early on, Brother Mickey, in my ministry, uh, we were always told, you got to motivate your people to do more, to do more, to do more. But you know what? As I study what Paul says about spiritual gifts and what happened with David right here, maybe we need to encourage some people to do less. Amen. They get busy about everything, doing things they're not gifted to do, doing things they've not been prepared to do. Can you imagine me doing the all-important ministry of being a nursery worker? I didn't even nursery my own kids. Right, Miss Tracy? And I want to tell you, you do what you're gifted to do. You do what you're gifted. God's prepared you for something particular. And it falls within the confines of the general will and the scripture guidelines and commandments and principles. Of course it does. And the ministry of this church, absolutely it does. Another lesson is, is God's purpose for you is for others. David, I made you a ruler over my people over Israel. I prepared you, David, to be a ruler over my people. I'm going to prepare somebody else to build a temple for my people, for me to, and my people to worship me. But you are for my people. And see, what you do for the Lord, that specific will of God, it's for others. It's a ministry for others. You know, we live in a day and age where we talk about all that God has done for me. Me, me, me. Well, what has God done for you through, through you for others? David, you're going to be a ruler over my people. My people are in mind, David. And then another lesson is, God may say no to your plans, but that does not mean he's saying no to you. Huh? God may say no to your plans, but that doesn't mean God's saying no to you. And then here's the last lesson. And it leads to the next thing about the promises of God. Listen to this. I love this. God will always, always, always do more for you than you want to do for Him. He will always do more for you than you want to do for him. We read the text. God says, David says, I want to build you a house. I want to do something for you, Lord. Preacher comes back in the middle of the night. And he says, it's not of God for you to build his house. God says, your son's going to build his house. I imagine David looked around and said, Are you kidding? Have you seen my sons? 
We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. Solomon not born yet. But then God says, you want to build me a house? David, I'm going to build you a house. And that house I build for you is going to last forever. And it's going to be a throne I'm going to build for you forever. And your son who builds my house, I'm going to bless his seed forever. So God said, nope, I'm going to build you a house. And the next thing we see is the promise of God. We learn about God's promises for us. Now, I want to tell you, God's purposes make His promises so sweet. They really do. His promises are always tied to His purposes. And you want to realize the promises of God being fulfilled in your life? Get involved in His purpose, and He'll do it. His purposes and promises cannot be separated. And what we read in verses 10 through 16 is what is called the Davidic covenant. And some of the promises that I'm, we're going to look at real quickly have to do with David only. Some of them have to do with Solomon, who will be born later only. Some of them have to do with the nation of Israel. Some have to do with Jesus, David's greater son. So let me just outline for you real quickly uh, the promises of God in the Davidic covenant. In verse 10, David sa God says to David, I will plant my people in a place and they'll never have to leave that place again. That's the land of Israel. That's the land of Israel. I believe that promise has been fulfilled. May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation. I think that promise has been fulfilled. Not without complications, but it's been fulfilled. Second of all, verse 11, David, I will make you a house, a dynasty. You say, well... Where's the Davidic dynasty now? Hold on, we're going to get to that in about an hour. Hold on. Verse 12. David, after you die, notice the Bible describes in verse 12, death is going to thy fathers. When you are with your fathers, that's heaven. That's a description of heaven. I will set up your seed and establish his kingdom. David's seed will have an established kingdom. This is Solomon. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus. Verse 13, Solomon will build my house and I will establish his throne. Verse 14 and 15, I will not abandon him like I did Saul. Now look, Saul messed up. We all know that. He, he got into sin, got arrogant, got prideful, and God brought him down. Solomon's going to get a little bit arrogant. He's going to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. He's really going to mess up. Solomon's going to start worshiping other gods. Solomon's going to gain all the wisdom that God has on earth, and he's going to not practice what he preaches. But here God promises David and said, I will not leave Solomon like I left Saul. There's a spiritual lesson in this promise, and it is this. There's a difference between the chastisement of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and the judgment of God upon somebody who's not saved. When somebody is not saved, their judgment is penal. It's judgment and wrath of God. That's what happened to Saul. But when somebody is saved, their chastisement is remedial. It's to help them and encourage them and move them along and mature them. Solomon was uh, chastised for his sin in a remedial sense. At the end of his life, he came back and said, I regret all I've lived. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Saul, on the other hand, God left him. 
and said, this man has abandoned me. He's going to reap what he sows. This is what he wants. I'll give it to him. And he left him. And the last person that Saul ever consulted on the spiritual level was a witch. You see? So I want to tell you what, if you're saved, there's a big difference in the chastisement of God on your sin than there is if you weren't saved. And so God promises David, I will not abandon Solomon. And then in verse 6, he tells, verse 16, he tells David, your house and your kingdom and your throne will be established forever. Now there are many lessons we can learn about the promises of God, but I just want to give you two of them and and I hope they will encourage you in the Lord, and then we'll be finished. And I'm going to show you how it plays out in Scripture. So get your Bible ready, because we're going to, we're going to take a little journey. Y'all ready to take a little journey? Some of the Scriptures will be on the screen. Some of them may not, but we're going to take a journey. What two lessons do we learn about the promises of God? Number one is God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. He kept them to Israel, keeps them to Israel, and he'll keep them to the church. Number two, not only does he keep his promises, but he does so with accuracy. He keeps them with accuracy all the way to the letter, to the most minute detail, God will keep his promises. Two particulars here in our text. I won't... Read the whole text again, but if you look at verse 12 and 13, you see that Solomon was not promised an established seed. Solomon was not promised an established lineage at all. Solomon was promised an established throne, verse 13. There is a difference. Let me show you, and we learn a valuable lesson about the promises of God. So get ready. After Solomon, after David died, Solomon became king. We learn that in 1 Kings. After Solomon's death, the kingdom split. There was a, there was a split in the kingdom. Solomon's son Rehoboam made an unwise decision and the kingdom split. Ten of the tribes of Israel in the north became what in Old Testament prophets would be called Ephraim or Israel. The nation of Judah was just that, the nation of Judah. And that was Solomon, I mean Rehoboam, that's what he reigned under. Jeroboam was the first king in the northern kingdom. So the kingdom split. It'd be like America splitting north and south. That may bring up some bad memories. East and west. All right, big split. The kingdom split. The northern kingdom, Israel, would have many dynasties, many kings and their sons, many assassinations. Never would they have a godly king. Can you believe that? Never would they have a godly king. And eventually in 722 B.C., the Assyrians would come and take the ten tribes into captivity. And they're no longer on the scene in the Old Testament. The kingdom of Judah would rock along and sometimes it would have a good king, and sometimes he would have a wicked king. Can a nation have good leaders at one time and then wicked leaders at another? I believe they can. Amen. I don't think we've had a godly one in a long time here in our country, one who walks with God with all his heart. There is a difference. And so, but the southern kingdom Judah would have one dynasty. All those kings in the south would be David's lineage. Every one of them would be a descendant of David. So fast forward with me 417 years. Y'all got that? Are you with me? Stay with me. 
Fast forward with me 417 years to the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah, another preacher's preaching. And the nation of Babylon is about to take over Judah and take them into captivity because of their sin. The king's name, the descendant of David, is by the name of Jeconiah. He is Solomon's descendant as well. Jeconiah. Also pronounced Coniah. He's the last Judean king. And Jeremiah says this about King Jeconiah. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? In other words, God's going to judge them through Babylon, and they're going to be taken captive. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write this man, Jeconiah, childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper. This is Solomon's descendant. But God never promised Solomon an established seed. And here God has taken it away. His seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now, Jeconiah had sons. We're going to see that in a minute. But none of those sons would ever sit on the throne of Israel because they were taken captive. He was the last king. Israel has never had a king since. You say, well, what about Benjamin Netanyahu? He's not a king. He's a prime minister, and he's in trouble. And so Jeconiah was the last king, and God said, no descendant of Jeconiah, therefore no descendant of Solomon will ever sit on the throne of Israel again. And it's come to pass. And it's because Solomon was never promised an established seed. That's the word of God. Now go with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Go with me. You ready? You with me? I hadn't lost you, have I? Because we can't take a break. You open these doors, the cool air is gone. So we can't take a break. Go with me to Luke chapter, I said Luke chapter 1. It's Luke chapter 3. And verse 23. This is the genealogy of, of Jesus. This is the Christmas story. Merry Christmas in August. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. And Luke's genealogy of Jesus starts with Joseph, and it goes back. And you read all these, these ancestors of Joseph. And then you come to verse 31, and you read this verse. Who was of the son of Malia, an ancestor of Joseph, who was the son of Mena, who was the son of Meth uh, Matatha, who was the son of Nathan, who was the son of David. Christ, in terms of genealogy and earthly lineage, was not a descendant of Solomon. He was a descendant of David. But David had a son named Nathan. And Nathan was the genealogical descendant our ancestor of Joseph and of Jesus. God said to, about to David, I will not establish his seed. He never was promised a seed. This is Nathan's seed. You see how the promise was very particular. God keeps his promises to the letter. You say, well, well what about Solomon? Well, go, I'm glad you asked. Go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at another Christmas text. Matthew chapter 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Luke starts one way and goes another. Matthew starts with Abraham and goes forward. All right? Goes all the way forward. Starts with Abraham, way back. And look, chapter 1, the genealogy. Skip down to chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. And Boaz, remember, who remembers Boaz? That's the book of Ruth. And Boaz begot Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David, the king. And David, the king, begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And it goes on down and it discusses Solomon. And it says, And Solomon begat Rehoboam and Rehoboam, etc., etc. Now go down to verse 11 of that same chapter. And it says, And Josiah begat Jeconiah. Remember him? And his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And then it discusses Jeconiah's sons, of whom none of them would sit on the throne. None of them would, would be... Would be uh, established in an established seed. And so, here we have the fulfillment of the promise. Jeconiah, Solomon's descendant, was childless in term of the throne. He was Israel's last king. But when we read in Matthew chapter 1 that he, that Joseph, Jacob begat Joseph, and he's in the bloodline of Jeconiah. So what is it? Is this God breaking His Word? No. Isn't there a little doctrine we Christians believe called the virgin birth? Isn't that somehow how God keeps His promises to us? But Joseph, just think about it. Think about how if Solomon had obeyed God and not had all those wives that drew away his heart, and the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, had lived right and served the Lord and kept their nations right, think of how the Christmas story would be different. The angel would not appear to Joseph the carpenter. He would appear to Joseph the king. Isn't that amazing? And Joseph would not have on a carpenter's apron. He would have had on royal garments. He wouldn't have been carrying a hammer. He'd be carrying a scepter. But sin messed everything up, didn't it? Sin got everything out of whack. Everything. Poor old Joseph. I imagine if he ever had done one of those kits where you send in the blood and you get the DNA and what is that? Uh, not Amazon, uh, Ancestry.com, if... If he had done Ancestry.com, he could have been a bitter man. He looked at Mary and said, by the way, I am a king. And he would have been a king. But God judges sin. And sin changes things. And sin messes things up. And sin brings havoc. And sin destroys everything except for the promises of God. Amen except for the promises of God. And then we have that wonderful promise that tells us in Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man legally, legally the descendant of Nathan and royally from Joseph, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, He will sit on the throne of his father, David. And the David, Davidic throne is in Jerusalem. One day Jesus will come back. One day Jesus will come back. But the point is today, friend, maybe you've been in sin. And you've gotten away from the Lord. Maybe you served the Lord upon a day and you were faithful and then you got a bad attitude about something. Preacher didn't wave at you at one of these four-way stops here in Ocean Springs. And you got upset about something, and you got a bad attitude. You say, well, you don't know what the church did to me. I don't know what the church did to you, but I know your attitude's bad. Amen. And you've gotten off into sin, and you hadn't, you hadn't fulfilled your obligation. But I want to tell you what, and God has moved upon your heart and 
is chastising you in your heart, drawing you to him. You haven't messed his promises up one iota. One iota. Sin messes everything up except for the promises of God. Well, real quickly, I hope you follow along with me on that, but let me, let me share with you one more thing, then we're done. Don't be getting ready to go. Listen to me. This is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. It is the promise of God to Israel. Now, folks, I believe the nation of Israel has the promises of God attached to it. They are earthly promises. Jesus said, Jesus said that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. There's two traits about the times of the Gentiles. Number one is Israel has no king, and Israel does not control Jerusalem. They do not have full control of Jerusalem today, and they have no king. But when Jesus comes back, they'll have their king, and he will reign from Jerusalem according to the promises of David. I believe Jesus is going to come back. Amen. Oh, I pray we don't turn our back on. You want to be on the winning side, support Israel. Amen. They win. But I want to tell you what, that's the, that's the promises to Israel, earthly promises. But for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are redeemed and born again, our promises are heavenly promises. We sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ, and we have the promise of His fellowship. We have the promise of His Spirit. We have the promise of His eternity, the promise of His life in us, and we have the promise of heaven when we die. We have the promise of victory over the devil and his wiles. We have the promises of God in the Bible, our spiritual heavenly promises. So no matter what goes on on this earth, the other day Tracy and I were talking about how bad the world is. And I looked at her and I said, I'm so glad I'm a Christian and my citizenship is in heaven because my future is as bright as the promises of God. Amen? If I were just a Democrat or Republican, my promises would be bright as next week. But I'm a born-again, blood-bought, Bible-believing, regenerated, reconciled son of God through Christ Jesus, saved by His grace. And I want to tell you what, my promises are as bright as, the, as, bright as God's own glory. Amen? What about yours? What, about, what promises are you having confidence in? What, what promises are you looking forward to? I want to tell you what, you can know Jesus and have all those heavenly promises. Be a joint heir with Christ. It's all yours in Christ Jesus. His purpose and His promise. I pray you would know Jesus today. Let's stand for our song of appeal. Mm -hmm.